to these people, this historical context at which this is happening, it is very similar to the day and age that we live in. If you haven't noticed it, if you are a Christian today, then surely you've recognized that the Christian life or the Christian perspective or the Christian moral standard is not the go-to. All right, it's not now we live in the Bible Belt, and so even a lot of it has not quite affected us 
quite as heavy, but even here, there's no doubt in my mind that you could go to work, that you could go to school, that you could maybe even lean into certain family members, and you will find resistance. Because there's a, a way of life, there's a morality, there's a, a mindset us this for time and time and time again, that our perspective is not the accepted one. It is not the default. And so for us as Christians, what this study has been about is how do we navigate it without this escapist mindset where we want to run away from the culture, but how do we engage with the culture by holding fast to what God has given us, by not letting go of the things that God has told us, stand fast, hold fast, be strong, be courageous, do not fear. You know, all these phrases that we have read through this verse leading, uh, these verses leading through 1 Peter as he is writing to these people who are afraid. He is writing to these people who are wondering what does the future have to hold? You know, if only they could have seen then that even today that the Christian faith is still standing strong, right? But in that context, they, they didn't know. I believe that they had faith in who God was and what God would do, but you have to believe that there was still a sense of like, what do we have to face? What's ahead of us? And I believe for us, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, maybe you ask yourself those same questions. I know I ask those questions about my children. What does the future have for them? What's ahead of them? What struggles? What oppositions? What temptations? What sin? What cultural standards are they going to face that don't line up with what God has called us to? And how do we prepare for that? And that's what 1 Peter is all about. 1 Peter is about facing culture. And continuing to live the Christian faith in light of the culture, but also continue to retain a space of influence within the culture without becoming the culture. Which is where a lot of our churches fall short is we're trying to become the culture. We're trying to make church more comfortable for the culture, and that's not what the culture needs. The culture doesn't need us to look like the culture. The culture needs us to look like something different. The culture needs us to be something that they're searching for deep down in their hearts. Deep down in their souls, they're missing something. And where the church falls short is if we start to become like the culture, we have neglected them what they truly need. They need the truth. And they need the love and the compassion that the gospel gives them, but the gospel only gives them that within the context of biblical truth. And so leading up to this point, Peter has been very kind of, uh, kind of, from the air view with everything, right? Kind of, he thought, you know, early on we talked about governments and we talked about, you know, all these different things. We talked about the family. We talked about kind of from the air, like how things look on a, on a macro scale. And as we've moved through these verses, we've kind of become closer and closer and closer to the personal, closer and closer to the individual. And so picking up in chapter 4, we get very personal where Paul begins to tell us specifically, this is how you as an individual need to be taking steps within the context of this cultural space. And you know, last, the two weeks ago when I preached, we talked about kind of the, the, the idea of preparation. Remember the, the verse, kind of a well-known verse, is being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for your hope. And so there's this sense of preparation for the individual to be ready to engage, Right? And then last week, as, as Brother Garen shared with us, it was more of an idea of, of the power that is in Christ. You know, in verse, uh, verse 22, we read this, for who has gone into heaven, talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. And so we're hearing this purpose of preparation to engage. And then Peter tells us at the end of chapter 3, he says that Christ, who you find that power in, 
he is sitting in authority, that everything is subjected to him. So you can see where Peter is kind of fixing our sights on something because in chapter 4, it's feet to the ground. It's steps forward for the individual. It's a call for me and you to begin to take active steps within the context of our relationships and our family, with our kids, in the local church, in our workspace. It's about to become way more personal for us and encouraging us to engage with this idea. And so what this has all been leading up to and what this has all been kind of in the context of, even from chapter 1 to now, is this idea of discomfort. Or the way the Bible would say it's suffering. You know, and a lot of us, you know, I'm glad that the Bible uses the word suffering because in a lot of us, even a tiny bit of discomfort for us, we consider suffering. And so, you know, try not to, you know, when we said at one point, it's like, you know, we're not saying that our suffering here in Western Christianity is anything like the suffering other people around the world for the Christian faith experience. Not that we may not ever come to that, but for a lot of us in the reality, many of us in this room will never have to give our life or truly suffer for the sake of the gospel. So when we talk about suffering, I want us to consider it even in the context of our discomforts even in the context of sacrifice, any sacrifice of our time, of our resources, whatever that might be. And so what Peter is writing to, he's writing to a group of people who he's saying, you will suffer, you will experience hardships, you will experience discomfort for the sake of the gospel. And where the church, where we can fail as the church is if we ever communicate the Christian life is anything but difficult. It's not roses and unicorns. It's meant to be difficult, and there's for a reason. And the Bible will tell us this here in chapter 4. What's the reason for the suffering that you experience for the sake of the gospel? We're not talking about all suffering, because a lot of times we experience suffering because of the sake of our selfishness, or we experience suffering because of the sake of our sin. But what Peter's going to be telling us about is the particular type of suffering that we experience because of our faith in Christ. And that he wants to fix our perspective on that. You know, because for us, the way we think about and interpret the cultural existence and spiritual achievements of our life is vital to our growth in discipleship. And so for us, the problem is, and for a lot of us as Christians, is that we live with a peacetime mindset. And so what does that mean for us as Christians? That we live as if there's not a lot at stake. We live as if there's not a lot that's against us. We live as if there's not a lot required of us. And here in chapter 4, that is the first thing that Peter engages with. The first thing that he begins to mention is that our problem is is that we can't live with a peacetime mindset. You know, for us as Christians, we can know that peace is coming. But now is not the time for peace. You know, and this is not a call to physical war. This is not a call to arm up. I'm not saying that. But the Bible does tell us that we are in a spiritual battle constantly. And too often, we don't live in a sense as if we acknowledge that. That there is something actively working against us. Actively working against our relationship to each other as Christians. Actively working against our relationship to God. Actively working against our relationship to the local church. Our evangelism. Our growth spiritually. There is something actively working against us in that. And if we live with a peacetime mindset, the problem is we begin to assimilate. We begin to assimilate to the culture around us. We begin to settle in. We begin to get comfortable because we don't want to experience that discomfort or that suffering. So what does Peter say? Verse 1, he says this. Since therefore Christ 
suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You know, so the thing that we have to remember is that the only need to arm yourselves is when there's a reason to defend or attack, right? Peter says, he says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. But what does he say arm yourselves with? He doesn't say arm yourselves with weapons, bows, spears, staffs, swords, whatever it might be. He says, he didn't say arm yourselves with a weapon ready to take life from someone. But what he says is he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Of thinking as who? The same way as thinking as Christ who suffered for you did. And so what is he telling us to arm ourselves? What space at which we arm ourselves with that we arm ourselves within the context of how we think? You know, and that's important for us to know because our thoughts precede our actions, right? Our thoughts, they influence and shape our activity. And if we live our life, and we as individuals, we live our life based on how we interpret the facts and information that we're given. I mean, that's what makes us different than the rest of creation is that we have the ability to reason and critically think. And so because we can take information, we can critically think through it, then we need to, as Peter has been giving them this information, he says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Christ who has suffered for you. And so what he's telling us when he says arm yourselves, that we can't afford to be passive in our Christian faith. For me, more and more and more, I'm realizing I cannot afford to be passive with my children and their faith in Christ. With your spouse, you can't afford to be passive. Because the more passivity we step into, the more we assimilate, the more our life begins to mirror, the more our mindsets begin to mirror the things outside of what God's will is. And so as we navigate that space, Peter is calling us to this mindset where we would have the same way of thinking. And so he has says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So he's pointing us to Christ, so he's calling us to a christ focused biblical mindset and this is not our default mindset we've talked about this a little bit before this is not the place where our mind goes naturally right our mind goes to much different places than the mindset of christ naturally and so we have to actively participate in this to be in this mindset of arming ourselves of preparing ourselves Romans 12, Paul talks about this in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by, and this is where we're going, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So why do we need this way of thinking? Why do our minds need to be transformed? Because one way or the other, the common universal experience of all of humanity is suffering of difficulties, of struggles, of hurts, of disappointments. This is the natural human experience is loss and hurt. And so the difference is, the difference is, is that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our discomfort, when we live seeking after the kingdom of God, God brings purpose in the midst of those things. Otherwise, there's no purpose. Otherwise, there's no meaning. Otherwise, it's just hurt for hurt's sake. And it's a cruel, cruel world that gives us hurt for hurt's sake. But whenever we step into this mindset, when he's telling them, 
When he's telling them, be prepared to engage, you know, two weeks ago, we talked about being ready to make a defense for the faith that you have hope in, the things that you have hope in. Be ready for that. Because he's telling us, you are going to suffer for that. You are going to experience discomfort and hardships for your faith. And so what he tells us is in preparing for that, he says, have the same arm yourself. Prepare yourself for battle in the same mindset. Be prepared to wage war in this way. And so continuing on, he tells us this. In verse 1, he continues. And he tells us that there's a purpose in the midst of this discomfort. There's a reason why he has called us out of our spaces of comfort in our Christian life and begin to take steps that may be uncomfortable for us. That may be awkward for us. That may be steps, spaces where we have to learn or where we have to grow. And he says this, in, uh, continuing on in verse 1. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what is he saying there? I think what's very significant about this, and I think something that we need to remember, is that it is, our most, it is in our most vulnerable spaces where we are the most moldable. Let me say that again. It is in our most vulnerable spaces that we are the most moldable. And so for us, we believe that when Christ saves us, that process of molding begins, right? Christ is sanctifying us, or He is making us into His image. He is making us into who Christ is. And so through our faith, when we step into that relationship with God, God begins molding us, but we are most moldable when we are most vulnerable. And so from day one of our Christian life, if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you can relate to this. That day one from your, in your Christian life, that there, there were difficult situations, right? There were adjustments that you had to make. There were situations at which were not the same for you anymore. Maybe even relationships that weren't the same for you even more. And as you've moved through the cultural context at which we live in now, that there are situations that you are navigating that are not comfortable, that are difficult, that are, that are pressing in around you, and you feel that. But what God is telling us, what Peter is writing to these people, is he's telling them, when you suffer for the sake of the gospel... It is ridding you of something that is robbing you of joy. Isn't that a beautiful thing that the God of the universe sees fit to use the difficulties around us to actually restore us? That God is using these uncomfortable situations to grow something from within us. Because what suffering does, when he talks about living the faith for Christ stepping out, making it your purpose in life to pursue God. That will inevitably, inevitably bring suffering. He says it will begin to press from without within us, press out sin. You know, and that is the space at which for us that we need to understand that it is a huge defeat of sin. It is a huge defeat of sin when we begin to pursue Christ, when we begin to step into those spaces to follow after Jesus and we suffer for it, when we suffer for seeking after Christ, it is a defeat of sin. Why is it a defeat of sin? Because when we pursue God, when we pursue Jesus, it is us acknowledging outside of ourselves that we are not the center of the universe. Right? Because if we avoid difficult situations, if we avoid suffering, if we avoid spaces of discomfort, what have we put at the center of our universe? We put ourselves. Because we don't want to be uncomfortable. 
We don't want to be questioned. We don't want to be outsiders. We don't want to be uh, not accepted. We don't want to be not going along with the flow. We don't want to be seen. We don't want to be in the light. We don't want to be those people set apart that the Bible has told us. And so our natural instinct is to be at the center of our universe. And what we do when we're in the center is we press away from ourselves anything that makes us uncomfortable. But when we begin to pursue for our families, for our spouses, for our kids, the relationship that God has called us to, it will inevitably bring difficulties and issues within our lives that will make us uncomfortable. But within that, that context, it will cause us to begin to acknowledge something that is more valuable outside of ourselves, more valuable than our comfort, more valuable than our opinions, more valuable than our pleasure, more valuable than our success, more valuable than our social standings, that Christ, being the center of our universe, allows us to navigate suffering, to navigate persecution, to navigate being the outsider, and gain something from it, to grow in the midst of it. Because what suffering is meant to do and maybe you're dealing with some sense of suffering now. Maybe you're coming out of a season of suffering, or maybe you anticipate to be entering into a season of suffering. In all degrees. Don't, you know, and I don't want us to only put suffering into this box of like physical persecution or some type of significant loss. But think of any space at which you're getting uncomfortable for your faith or within a relationship that you believe God has established, that in that, that if you are suffering or you're entering into suffering or you're coming out of it, then what God is doing in the midst of that suffering is meant to pry open our hands. Anytime we experience difficulties, especially, mostly for the faith that we have in Christ, seeking after what Christ has for us, if God is allowing us to navigate through a space of suffering, He is attempting to pry open our hands to make us let go of something that we are holding on to that we see as more valuable than what He gives us. That we are holding on to these things. We are holding on to these things that bring us joy, that bring us comfort. And you know what? Most of the time, the issue, most of the time, the issue is what we are holding on to most tightly is ourselves, is our pride. What we are holding on to most tightly is our identity that we've dictated, this identity that we've determined, this identity that we've decided is true. And so we're holding on to this so tightly. And so what God has given us is He's given us suffering that is meant to cause us to let go of things that aren't God's will, that aren't helping us, and that aren't good for us. Church, life in a fallen world guarantees suffering. The difference is that we need to determine what we're suffering for. We need to determine what we're suffering for. Is it for our pursuit of ourselves or is it for our pursuit of God? Because if it's for our pursuit of God, then God will do good in the midst of it. If it's for our pursuit of ourselves and our own selfishness, then we will continue to suffer meaninglessly for it. God intends to work in the midst of our difficulties if in the midst of those difficulties we are pursuing Him. You know, because what He's called us to is this biblical view of suffering. And so he says here, when he says the same way of suffering, he's calling us to consider suffering that has a purpose. Because Christ's suffering had a purpose, right? Christ's suffering was redeeming. And so when he calls us to have the same mindset about suffering, he's reminding us that Christ's suffering was redeeming and our suffering is rehabilitating. So what am I saying in that? 
God is using our suffering to make us stronger. You know, if you've gone to rehab for any, I remember I broke my ankle a few years back and I remember going to a therapist, going to rehab, and it was the most miserable experience and and most vulnerable experience I've ever done in my life because I, you know, I have this broken ankle and they're like, stand on one leg. And so you think to yourself, well, that's the easiest thing I've been doing that my entire life, bouncing around on one leg. And so as I attempted to do this for weeks and weeks and weeks, I would fall, I would fall over and I would think to myself, what am I doing? Like, why can't I do this? Like, like it's healed it's fixed like I should be able to do this but I had to in the midst of that be patient through the process because what these people were doing with me what the therapists were doing with me is they were rehabilitating me and that rehabilitating was suffering and that rehabilitating was uncomfortable and that rehabilitation was uh was at times I felt disgraced at times I felt like I embarrassed you know and but that's part of the process and so what God does in the midst of our suffering we may be embarrassed we may feel uh you know ridiculed we may feel vulnerable but what God is doing when we are pursuing him and in the midst of that pursuit in the midst of trying to live the Christian life we enter into some space of suffering trying to do God's will, we enter into some states of suffering, what God is doing is He is rehabilitating us. He is slowly molding us, making us stronger, pressing away those things that are robbing us of God's glory and is good for us. And so why does does this happen for us? In verse 1, remember He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And then continuing on, He says, so as to live. So as to live. So as to live for what? It says, so as to live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this suffering that we experience as trying to follow our Christian faith, he says this suffering is meant to lead us towards a closer relationship with God and away from human passions. Because this is our greatest detriment is our, is our internal passions, right? These things that we feel like determine us. These things from within us that we feel like identify us. That, I mean, you can go out and ask any single person, you know, most people, especially people who aren't Christians, you know, what identifies you? Most of them are going to answer some sense at which their passions identify who they are. The things that they feel like they want. The things that they feel like they want to experience. The things they feel like they want to have. Like those things are the things that dictate who they are. And Peter is telling them here, listen, when we suffer for the sake of our faith, God is pressing those passions out of us and revealing to us the will of God. That we can't be afraid to be uncomfortable for our faith and in pursuit of our faith and participating in our faith because what God is going to do in the midst of that is He's leading us away from ourselves and He's leading us closer to the Creator of the universe. That He's leading us closer to the God who created you and I in His image. That God, the God who by, by evidence, if you just open your eyes to the, the visual nature of nature that was created with order, that nature that was created with structure, that there is purpose in creation. And because there's purpose in creation, there has to be a creator. And because there's a creator, we can see that God is calling us into this space to be in the presence of that creator. And so that if our suffering for a moment or for a lifetime is leading us to that, that that is the place at which we need to be. Not the empty space at which our passions lead us to. I don't know about you, but my passions lead me to some pretty rotten spaces sometimes. 
my mind, my desires, they can lead us to some rotten places to be as people. They can lead us to spaces that just destroy our credibility. They can lead us to spaces that destroy our relationships. They can lead us to spaces that destroy who we are and eat away at that very identity at which God has given us when he says, as Christians, you are mine. I've created you in my image. You are my beloved. And it's within that space that it can be dismantled and destroyed if we are led by our passions. And continuing on in verse 3, he says this. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And so what he's telling us here, and I think this is something that we need to understand as we are navigating this space, is that there needs to be a past. There needs to be something that we're actively leaving behind. Because if, there, if there's not something, and I was thinking about this this morning, if there is no old way, it's not the right way. If there's no old way that we used to live, then we may not be on the right way. The way we are now needs to be, even if it's microscopic, there needs to be a space at which our life looks different. Our desires are different than where they used to be. Because if we've experienced the loving, saving grace of our holy God, then even if it's over time, even if it's even now, being able to look back, Maybe in that moment you didn't see the change, but after several years, maybe you can look back and say, man, there was some difference. There is some change in that, even though God is still working on me. Because that's the thing. The reason Peter is saying all this is because he understands the power of sin is still very present. And so when he says uh, back in, uh, in verse 1, when he says that uh, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he's not saying that you have ceased sinning. He says that you have ceased from sin. That the effects of sin against you have begun to be less. That there is not this significant draw to sin anymore. That even though sin may still be there and the draw to sin may be still, there may still be a remnant of sin. Listen, there is a remnant of my sin that still affects me today. There is a ripple of my sin before Christ that still affects me today. And for you, there will be the same thing. There will be a ripple effect of your sin 10 years ago that may still be affecting you today. But it doesn't mean that God is not still molding you. It doesn't mean that God is not still making you. But for us, we have to continue pressing forward, even when those ripples hit us, even when that remnant catches up with us, that we're still pursuing Christ and we're still moving in that direction. Romans 6, 14, it says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You know, and I love that it says that we're going to be talking that about something along these lines in our men's group uh, tonight at 5. Uh, shameless plug for our men's group, come 5 to 6. We're going to be talking about biblical manhood. And anyway, for, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. And so when it says that you have no dominion, what it's telling us is this is not a space at which sin has authority for you anymore if you're a Christian. Because you can only have dominion when you have authority. And what the Bible is telling us and what Paul is writing in Romans, he is telling the Christian, as a Christian, sin has no dominion over you because it has no authority over you. If sin is affecting you, it's because we have given it authority. God has not given it authority over us. God has taken that authority away from sin over our lives. But if it continues to affect us, it's because we are either not actively acknowledging it or we are participating in it. And he's telling us, stop giving authority to that sin because it has no dominion over you. Galatians 5.24, and I'm moving. I'm seeing my timer run down. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified in the flesh with its passions and desires. 
that God, Christ died on the cross to rob, take away from us those passions, to lead us away from those things, a past that drove us, a past that motivated us towards a different path. And so God has called us as husbands, wives, parents, grandparents, employees, employers. God has called us to a different path, a different direction. And then he mentions some things moving through here in verse 3. He says, away from that past that suffices. And he says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Very specific, very pointed places. But I think the first word is the word that we focus on right here. And it's the word sensuality. A lot of times when we think about sensuality, we immediately attribute it to some type of sexual thing. But it's not necessarily limiting it to sexual experiences when he says sensuality. When he says sensuality, he's saying that, that we not be driven by this idea that would define sensuality as this, to go wherever the physical desires of your body leads. And that's in a lot of context, right? Because the physical desires of our body can lead us to food, right? And so he's saying, don't not being led by these physical desires that maybe lead us to depend on or to tolerate or to give in to things or to make things our God or to make things within our life, these things that we constantly go back to or want for comfort or value or importance, whatever it might be. And so, you know, sensuality could, in a sense, lead us to overindulgence of food. It could lead us to sexual experiences that are robbing us of the joy that God has given us. It can rob us to try to be the center of attention in our lives. And so what he's telling us, and all of these things, you know, where they're talking to me, you know, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, all of these things kind of pressed together, they're all these things that basically find us at the center and are driven by our physical desires. Right? It's taking something that God has given us, food, drink, sex, whatever it might be, taking something that God has given us and making it sinful, making it our God making it and perverting it to fit what our physical desires need. And so these things all add up to the last word in this kind of flow that says lawless idolatry. And this type of idolatry happens when we are seeking self-idolatry. When we are at the center of our universe, when we are what we worship, when we are what we've elevated, when we are what we have put on the pedestal. Because the thing is, church, and this is the thing even as Christians we have to understand, if we aren't in search of God, we will only find ourselves and live to satisfy those cravings. If you aren't in search of God, you will only find yourself at the end of the road. And then we will live to satisfy those cravings. Because the reality for us, church, is we don't have the right to use good gifts in the ways that they shouldn't be used. And we must protect ourselves and not live to satisfy those cravings. And so that's what Peter is saying. You know, he says, listen, that, that these past things, these past experiences suffice for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Like, and, and you live that. He's writing to Gentiles. He said, this is who you used to be. And you were people that were driven by physical desires. You were people that took good gifts that God has given us and overindulged in them or made them your God or let them lead or, or, or enslave you, whether it was drinking or, or, or sex or whatever it might be. He says all these things, you let those lead you, ultimately leading to lawless idolatry which puts you at the center because you weren't seeking after God. And so he's calling us to this other place because inevitably if God's not the, the, the pursuit that we're after, we're inevitably going to find ourselves and ourselves will be at the center of that pursuit because temptations, church, are all around us and our morality and our sense of morality and what is right or wrong is constantly under attack and being challenged. 
so if God isn't at the center of our pursuit, then our morals will be, be defined by what our physical desires are, which is where we are in our culture. That our morality is being shaped and being fluid because of what our physical desires want, in whatever space that is. Morality, church, we have to understand is not a human concept. It is God's, and we have no right to manipulate it for our own convenience. But that's where we find ourselves sometimes. Even as Christians, we will manipulate morality to fit our convenience. And that's why he is calling us to be willing to step into spaces of suffering for our faith because it will press that, from outside, press that outside of us, push that out of us. Because, and, and he says, and, and Peter continues on, and he says in verse 4, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. And not even that, <clears throat> but they malign you. And this word malign, maybe in your other translation you may be reading it, it says that they slander you. So not only does pursuing Christ make you a social outcast, but it'll make you the victim of slander. It'll make you the victim of of. of of anger. It'll make you the victim of hate. It will make you the victim of all of these things. But the thing God has called us to is to not live as victims. To not live as victims, but to continue to live differently even in the midst of that difficulty that we face. You know, we are naturally social beings and that is where the enemy attacks us first. It's the fear of being socially outcast. And listen, I'm just going to warn you as a Christian, it's inevitable. And I say Christian, true Christianity, true biblical Christianity will be pressed to the outside of what's accepted, of what's liked, of what's appreciated, of what's gone to. Listen, you know what was funny is there's there's so many spaces and places that I feel like I used to navigate in where people would just pray. You know, people would pray. People would ask for prayer. People were hurting or suffering. Listen, they would be at church. They would go to church. They would ask their Christian friends to pray for them. I don't know about you, but I don't see that as much anymore. I don't see that as much anymore because the culture doesn't seize us as necessary. I don't, I don't need that. I don't need that. I have that within myself. I have the strength and power within myself to be and do what I need to do as a human being. And what that does is it's created a universe at which we are the center of. And so when everything we love and hold dear begins to break down, what happens to our universe? Our universe is in shambles. But when our pursuit is Christ... When our pursuit is Christ and our personal universe begins to shatter, we still have hope in something greater than ourselves. We still have confidence in something that God is telling me, listen, you're in the midst of hurt and suffering, disappointment or persecution right now. There is something on the outside of this that you're moving towards. But that only happens if our universe is not centered around us. That only happens when our universe and the universe that we present to our kids and the universe that I talk about with my spouse is outside of my universe because it gives me hope outside of the hurt that I'm experiencing. It gives me hope outside of the mess that I don't know about you, but I constantly create for myself. And it's only within that context that I have something to move outside of. And so not only is there purpose to suffering, but there's a product to suffering. And this is where we'll end, I promise. There's a product to our suffering. Verses 5 through 6, as I'm sure the kids are going to be coming in and we're going to celebrate together here at the end, but I, I want to get you this before we leave. That there's a product to our suffering and a reason why they reference back to Christ. 
He continues on, he says, but they will give account on him who is ready to judge. There's an urgency at which we need to be living as Christians. And here, he's talking about an unbelieving world. He says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge. Talking about God, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And then in verse 6, he says this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are. And so when it says judged in the flesh, the way people are, what is it saying? Each and every single one of us, more than likely in this room, will experience judgment of the flesh. What does that mean? We will experience a physical death. I'm sorry if that sounds crass, but I've been a hospice nurse for four years, and so when I talk about death, it just kind of flies out of my mouth. But we will experience the judgment of the flesh. Adam's sin brought in physical death. Every single one of us will experience the judgment of the flesh. But, but, he says here, the judgment of the flesh, judged in the flesh the way people are. But the gospel is preached so that, the end here of verse 6, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. That they may live in the Spirit the way God does. So what's the product of suffering? The product of Christ's suffering was the gospel. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross so that each and every single one of us would have hope outside of our worldly suffering. We would have hope outside the judgment of the flesh, of Adam's sin, that would bring about the breakdown and decay and the, the restlessness of the world that we live in. God did something. The product of suffering is the gospel. The redemption of Christ by the, to reconcile us to Himself. And this is the message that our suffering provides within us and produces outside of us that gives life. The people in your life, your kids, your spouse, your family, your co-workers, they need the message of life and they will see it through your suffering for Jesus. They will see it when you put yourself in spaces and places that make you uncomfortable for your faith. They will see it in your relationship when you pursue Christ above all things, even your spouse, when you pursue Christ above all things, God will lead you into this space that will make that relationship better, will make that space better because it is life outside of my flesh. It is life outside of my suffering. It is life outside of my experience. And this is not all there is. This world, this experience we have is not all there is, that there is something beyond this. And when we have a biblical view of suffering and discomfort, we begin to see that. Because a biblical view of suffering protects us from the lies of the enemy. Because what does the enemy do in the midst of, lie, in the midst of our suffering? He tells us, for one, God has abandoned you. If you're going through hardships right now, God has abandoned you. If you're going through suffering, just like Job, Job's friends would have said to him, you're suffering and experience difficulties. Job, you must have done something sinful and wrong. But maybe we're experiencing suffering and difficulties because God is trying to pry open our hands to let go of ourselves. Let go of something we're holding on to or making the God in our lives. To show us that there is life outside of us. Suffering is not the absence of God. God has not left us to our circumstances, but He is actively involved in its progress for our good, for our sanctification, and for our work in kingdom expansion. That is why James in James 1-2 would say, count it joy when you suffer. Count it all joy when you suffer because God is doing something with you. He's doing something in you and He intends to use you. That is why He calls us 
to count it all joy. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6, 7, and 8 says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Romans 6, 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And so as I finish this, and we're going to worship as the worship team comes, Sean and them come up, and, and we're going to enter into a space of worship, and then after that time of worship, we're going to celebrate and have a baptism. But what we need to understand is that Christ's willingness to suffer saved us. Our willingness to suffer will sanctify us, mold us, make us into the people that God's called us to be in our marriages, in our parenting, in our circles of influence of the people that God has placed specifically in your life that are waiting to see you for one, suffer for your faith. They're, they're waiting to see. Is this faith valuable enough to you that you'll put it in a space where it makes you uncomfortable? And not only that, they're waiting for you to share with them the product of the suffering of Jesus. The product of the suffering of Jesus is the gospel. The product of the suffering of Jesus is the good news of Jesus. The product of the suffering of Jesus is that there is something beyond all of this that we experience. So church, if you could, would you stand with me this morning? As you close your eyes, bow your head, we're going to pray and enter into a time of worship. And just ask God to Ask God to reveal to me, to, to reveal to you what it is that He has for us to suffer through. Maybe we're in the midst of suffering, maybe we're preparing to step into suffering. That God would reveal to us what He's trying to pry out of our hands. What am I holding on to? What have I made the God in my life? What am I worshiping above Him? Church, let us bow our heads and pray. Father God, we just thank You. God, we thank You for who You are. God, we thank You for what You've done. God, we thank You for the goodness of Your glory and the grace that You've provided. Father God, we are broken, desperate people in, in need of something outside of ourselves, Father God. And I pray that in our, all our sin, all our idolatry, Father God, that we would see Thank you.